It is way too early this Monday morning, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. His name's Tommy Coleman. Yes, I forgot that. My His name's, name's Christopher Cotter. And your name's David Robertson. And welcome back. As always, this week we've got an interview by Dr. Christopher Cotter with our good friend Wendy Dossett on the subject of religion, spirituality and addiction recovery. So I'll just pass right over to Chris and Wendy. When we think about religion, spirituality and addiction, a number of things might come to mind. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step programs, working with prisoners and so on, that kind of thing. Um, but what are we even meaning by addiction? Why are we considering addiction in the framework of religion, spirituality, or here on the Religious Studies Project? Um, joining us to discuss these issues and many more um, is Dr. Wendy Dossett, Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester. There, she's also Principal Investigator of the Higher Power Project, a qualitative study of the language used by people in 12-step recovery, and Director, Research, of the Chester Studies of Addiction, Recovery and Spirituality group. Among her particularly relevant publications in this, to this interview, uh, she's co-editor of a special issue of the journal Religions on Religion and Addiction, which we'll make sure to link to from this podcast page, and also the Bloomsbury book Alternative Salvations, Engaging the Sacred and the Secular, which also features some of her work in this area. And Wendy's also appeared on the RSP before in a special roundtable discussion recorded at Chester on narrative and reflexivity in the study of religion, released back in November 2014. First of all, uh, Wendy, welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you for having me. Um, technological issues aside, <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you. The listener will be completely oblivious to that, except for the fact that I've just mentioned it. There we go. Um, so we kicked off there by mentioning what even is addiction. Before we can have this whole conversation, we need mm -hmm. to, to set the ground rules and that. Okay, so addiction, there's always a risk of, of um, unnecessarily pathologizing human behavior. Um, but the, the clinical lit literature describes addiction as a disorder, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and various process uh, addiction disorders. So they might be particular behaviours like um, gambling in particular, um, sex ad addiction, internet addiction, and so on. Um, and basically they're, they're behaviours that um, have a negative effect um, on the person who's uh, experiencing them and um, on their families, on their mm. communities. Um, so there's a, an element of, of social harm there of some sort. Um, they're they're behaviours that are engaged in in a compulsive way. Mm. Um, and what people who, who suffer with these disorders report is sometimes they report um, a desire not to engage in these behaviours and yet they do. Um, they want to stop, but they find they can't. Um, sometimes um, a phenomenon called denial is a, is a feature mm. of addictive behaviours where people will say, well, it's not that bad. Um, I'm not doing anybody any harm um, with this. And they're, and they're able to tell themselves that, that that's the case. Um, but people observing them might, might describe that as denial. Mm. So there's there's an element in there of there's sort of 
a clinical side mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, a, I guess, a sort of social element. I mean, yeah. we don't tend to talk about people being addicted to capitalism and things like that. <laughs> oh, I think you, you possibly <laughs> could. Yeah. <laughs> um, you oh. possibly could. I mean, actually thinking about capitalism as a frame um, for addiction, I think, is quite is quite productive in some ways. So addiction is often described as a kind of isolating um, condition and kind of capitalist neoliberal societies are you know, kind of produce um, isolation and imbalances of power and so on. Um, So you you tend to find that um, addiction is more prevalent in in, um, communities or parts of communities that are disenfranchised in some way. Mm. So um, colonised communities, for instance, there's very high rates of, of addiction amongst um, First Nation mm. communities, Native Americans, Aborigines, and so on, where levels of disenfranchisement, disempowerment is very high. Mm. Um, so, it, it, you know, no. it, there is a political frame to, yeah, to the study of absolutely. And um, although we'll not push this, I imagine I recently interviewed Matt Francis on radicalization. Mm-hmm. I imagine there might be a way that we could push this to maybe talk about addiction and radicalization, possibly. Religion as addiction. Yeah, know. yeah. Mm, yeah, but yeah, there's, there's certainly <clears throat> literature on that. Mm. Um, and it, it would be, you know, kind of explored in terms of the harm that, um, you know, compulsive commitments to particular mm. views might cause for families and communities. Yeah, but we're not going to go down that route today. (laughs) Um, But why are we even discussing um, religion, spirituality and addiction? Um, There's maybe, I could think of like sort of colloquial reasons, but you're the researcher, so I mean, why the connection? Um, So recovery from addiction can happen in many different ways. People sometimes just recover spontaneously. That that's a phenomenon that's that's noticed um, in the literature, um, and there are many other recovery modalities and methodologies that don't make any reference to religion or spirituality at all. But my research is focused on Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, mm. and the dozens of other twelve-step fellowships. Um, that exist for different um, substance use disorders and and behavioural addictions. Um, And those organisations, AA was the first of those uh, kind of organisations to come into being in the Mm. 1930s in the States. Um, And it understands addiction as a um, a spiritual malady. So... um, the, the, the excessive drinking um, that alcoholics, um, people are described as alcoholics within this this particular view of addiction, yes. um, uh, what's underlying their behaviour is a, is a spiritual malady that, that needs to be addressed in order to, for abstinence to, to occur. So the 12-step programme, um, you know, which we hear things about, mm. <laughs> um, is, is a... a a kind of step-by-step program um, designed to enable people to address that underlying spiritual malady. Mm. So there's sort of there's historical reasons for this focus mm. in that that those programs exist. Yeah. Um, and I, sorry. and there's historical uh, reasons for why religion is associated with them. Um, in that the the founders of of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
um, Bill Wilson and Dr. Robert Smith were both influenced in different ways by uh, the Oxford group, which were a, a kind of conservative evangelical form of Protestantism around in the States and in Europe, in fact, in, in the 1920s and 30s. Right. Um, and they, the Oxford group was trying to uh, explicitly recreate their vision of the early church. So they had recommended practices of uh, arising in the morning and having quiet time to uh, pray and meditate and to, dis- and to discern the will of God for the day. And they had this practice of um, kind of rehearsing uh, their what they considered to be their shortcomings or wrongdoings publicly in a in a group. Um, so from there we get this this idea of uh, you know that AA has of people sharing mm. in a group, which is kind of the distinctive um, practice of AA. So it, it, its origins were rooted very strongly in religion, but almost immediately that AA began. Um, there was debate about whether um, higher power, um, which is a kind of key thing in this discussion, mm. needed to be the god of religion um, or whether it could be something else. Mm. So higher power in the 12-step way of, of thinking about addiction is necessary because personal willpower is unable to to uh, make any purchase on the problem. So, um, you know, people want to stop drinking, they want to stop using drugs, they exert their willpower and their willpower fails. So willpower is not the mechanism by which people in AA and NA say that yep. they are sober or abstinent. Um, they they say a, ha- a higher power is required, but that higher power can be um, anything so long as it isn't, so long as there's a recognition that it isn't willpower. Mm. So my research in in the Higher Power Project is um, really exploring contemporary members of these 12-step fellowships, taking into account that kind of strongly religious history, asking people um, who describe themselves as being in recovery by this method, what is your higher power um, and how does it work and how did you you arrive at your concept of higher power, What's, what's influenced it? Has it, um, did you have a prior religious uh, belief before you came into recovery mm-hmm. or not? Um, do you describe yourself as religious now? Um, has your concept of higher power changed over the course of time that you've been in recovery? So yeah. trying to get a kind of a, a contemporary um, snapshot to set against that that historical stuff. Yes, and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of assumptions that, that, come along with the way that people will bracket off AA and other 12-step programs as mm. as religious or yes. things like that, and which I know that your research challenges. But you've mentioned the Higher Power Project there, um, giving us a bit of an insight into sort of guiding questions. But I always like to ask in these interviews, how might one go about researching in this area? And I can imagine, uh, particularly working with um, people in recovery, that this could there could be various ethical issues sure. and methodological issues. Yeah. So maybe if you could just tell us a bit about that before we get into the nitty okay. gritty of your findings. Um, well, I've got some background in, in working with people. Um, I worked in a, in a treatment center um, for a year. So I've got um, a bit of professional background and training in that area. Um, obviously, um, 
it's it's researching um, a potentially vulnerable group. Yeah. Um, and that has um, ethical implications, um, which can be mitigated. So ways in which um, we've attempted to mitigate those is we we don't um, interview anyone who's less than six months um, away from their last drink or or, or drug or whatever um, their their particular issue was. So they have been in sustained recovery for a, a significant period of time before we interview them. And we also make sure that um, they've got in place um, various supports. So they, they, they know right up front what we're going to be asking them about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we ask them to make sure that um, if they're working with a key worker or a sponsor, um, that that person knows that they're they're participating in our research and that they're aware that they'll be talking about potentially talking about things that are um, you know quite troubling. Yeah. Um, so those those ethical issues certainly needed to be taken into account. Um. So we might as well just dive right in um, into your research then. So I know that um, spirituality. Is, is a word <laughs> that comes up then throughout your writing and throughout this yeah. material a lot. Um, and maybe that's a word that we haven't yet introduced okay. into the interviews. So perhaps yeah. let's take us through spirituality and maybe 12 step spirituality. Okay. Um, so AA and NA um, explicitly claim that they are spiritual, but not religious. Um, and Robert, Fuller, who, who wrote that 2001 volume, um, Understanding Unchurched America, and mm. the spirit, spiritual but not religious, Understanding Unchurched America, he actually credits AA with um, bringing that term into the fore. Um, and um, the reason um, that these groups claim to be spiritual but not religious they they are fiercely independent so they don't they're not aligned um they explicitly say they're not aligned with any sect or denomination mm. um there are no requirements of belief um to be a member the only requirement is a desire to stop drinking or using drugs um and it and that's just a desire it's not even the requirement to have mm. <laughs> stopped um, so they they are not um, they they argue religious organisations, um, but they do argue that um, underlying um, problematic substance use is um, you know a spiritual malady they call it, um, which is based on um, things like self centred fear, um, anger, resentments, and so on. Um, that for in order for recovery to set in long term, um, these need to be addressed, and the twelve steps um, provide a framework um, in which people progressively, if they choose to, there's no compulsion, but if they choose to, um, they look. Um, so in, in steps one to three are about acknowledging personal powerlessness over the over the substance and acknowledging the need for a higher power, whatever that might be. Mm. Um, steps four to nine are about looking at the past um, and identifying behaviour um, that might have been damaging to the self or other people, 
um, that occurred during um, active addiction. Um, and there's a process of, of kind of looking that in the eye, coming out of denial, um, my participants would say, mm. um, about that behaviour. And um, where possible, without causing any further harm, um, addressing that in some way. So steps eight and nine are called the amend steps, where mm. where people try to um, take responsibility for things that they had done in addiction and um, to try to mend relationships where those were damaged. Um, and and that, that's kind of seen as crucial to the recovery process because people who've experienced addiction um, are often in at odds with the world and with their with their families and communities and it's very hard to um to stay away from substances that give you some relief from those feelings yeah. if, if you haven't addressed them um so then steps 10 11 and 12 are about um prayer and meditation and um developing um uh, a more uh, ongoing relationship with a higher power but um, in terms of that concept of higher power, our, lots of our participants make no theological or metaphysical claims about that higher power at all. They'll, okay. they'll say that um, their higher power um, is the people that they have met in these fellowships, their friends who are walking the same path as them. Um, they'll, they might refer to the wider fellowship um, so a, a kind of classic um, statement is God. They'll say God for me, G-O-D, group of drunks or group of druggies. So there's a kind of communitarian idea of a higher power. So mm. it's not them as individuals doing it. It's it's the group together are achieving something that they couldn't do on their own. Mm. People talk about the power of nature. Some people use terms, kind of very deist terms, like the spirit of the universe. Mm. Um, a common one that people will talk about is the force in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, some people will name individual people as their higher power. That's quite unusual um, in 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 terms of my research. But um, and and one of our participants um, named her cat um, as her high her higher power initially when she when she first um, got sober. She was looking around for something that offered her unconditional love, and she, hmm. she felt the only thing in her life um, that did that was was her cat. So her hmm. cat functioned as a higher power for a, for a time in her recovery. Hmm. So there's there's a kind of massive um, scope within twelve step programs for people to develop this concept hmm. in whatever they way they want to. And so there's a we as researchers need not approach this, let's say, through the lens of religion or spirituality, because mm. you mm. could, you could psychologize that you if, if you, if you yeah. wanted to. Yeah. Um, but I gather <laughs> from reading some of your work, the part of your argument would be like you to respect the language that's being used. I think it's um, allowing your participants mm. to, to describe things in their own terms. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that's particularly important in this, research site which is often characterized in different ways by outsiders and the the insider voice is is actually very rarely heard mm. um the 
there's quite a lot of vested interest um, from a clinical point of view of saying um, AA and NA are religious organisations. Um, so, you know, because they're free, <laughs> yeah. they're naturally existing within communities. So, um, you know, professional uh, treatment services uh, see them potentially as a threat. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an absurd um, kind of situation, but um, they're often very keen to describe these organisations as religious organisations. And, you know, what I would hope that my research does is for sure acknowledges the religious roots mm. um, and the strongly religious language in their in their formal literature. But to use the, the tools and methods of religious studies mm. to say, well, you know, what are what is the ex actual experience of contemporary people who work these programs and yeah. how are they dealing with, um, you know, the language, the the very Christian language of of their of their texts. How are they dealing with the the male language of their texts? I mean, mm. the, the main text of Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, was written in the nineteen thirties um, in the states by white Christian men. There's a couple of atheists in there, but um, you know that that language is is kind of of its time so how you know how mm. does a how does a non-white woman in contemporary aa kind of encounter mm. um that kind of language and you know obviously um you know we've got tools within religious studies to help us kind of notice these things and and to not characterize traditions solely in terms of their origins or solely in terms of their texts yeah um and and to and to be interested in how um contemporary practitioners kind of negotiate their authoritative statements within their tradition yes and it's a really excellent sort of one of those boundary cases that you know yeah. you can you can certainly see the religious roots you can see yeah. the um, spiritual language you can yeah. see the the various splinter groups you know that you yes. talk about sort yeah. of um atheist groups and yes. agnostic groups and yes. feminist groups and that yes. kind of thing you can see all that uh, but rather than needing to pigeonhole it into one box or another we can yeah. analyze those various yeah. elements and... we're good at complexifying things aren't we yeah but, you know hopefully complexifying in a way that that is helpful um for people who want to know more about these organizations mm. we're already um getting towards time being done which is fantastic because it's been a nice <laughs> free-flowing conversation but um so before we get to that point i always would want to ask um so where are things going um maybe you can reflect specifically on the higher power project mm -hmm. which is is it coming to a close now? Um, and then maybe this broader uh, field of research where you would like to see things, where you mm -hmm. think things are going. Okay. Um, well, I, the data collection for the Higher Power Project is, is completed. Um, there are some publications already out and some due to come out. The monograph is yet to be written. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's all important. But I think there are, there are lots of, um, areas that need kind of further, further research. So the whole, you know, the emergence of non-religion as a category, 
mm. um, of analysis within religious studies, I think is particularly interesting and needs to be used explicitly in analysing these sites. So um, there are um, AA and NA groups who um, explicitly identify as atheist. So these are these are um, you know fascinating kind of sites of. Um, potentially spirituality, but even some of yeah. these atheists reject the term spirituality. But it's clearly related because of the mm. very atheist nature of the group. It exists in relation to yeah. Yeah, the exactly, field. exactly. So that I think that that needs to be explored. You know, I'm always kind of disappointed when I see surveys of contemporary spirituality of any, you know, however that's defined, you yeah. know, religion, spirituality, non-religion, that don't mention um, this because, um, you know, there, in, in the UK there are 45,000 members of AA practicing 12-step spirituality um, uh, according to the AA census. And, um, you know, that's not far off the numbers of people who identify as pagan. Yeah. And you would never dream of a of a survey that didn't talk about, you know, modern paganism in Britain. Yeah. But no people don't tend to mention twelve step um spirituality. So seeing that more um in the literature would be something that, that I would want to see. There's also um another kind of cultural phenomenon emerging around recovery from addiction, and that's the visible uh recovery movement. So these groups that I'm talking about are anonymous. The spiritual so they're kind of under the radar. Yeah, spiritual anonymity. They don't announce their membership of these groups. They don't um, publicly identify as being members. Um, and they see that as a spiritual practice to do with humility because mm -hmm. their, their recovery is uh, attributable not to them but to a higher power. So they're, they're not going to say, hey, look at me, look what I've achieved. Yeah. Um, and anonymity is important in terms of newcomers feeling mm. safe um, to access them. But then we know that that then leads to it maybe being a more underground phenomenon Absolutely. and not being yeah. talked about. Yeah. yeah. So there's this other thing that's happening that's not unrelated, but the visible recovery movement, there have been uh, walks. It's very much based on um, gay pride, people taking to the streets openly identifying as being people in recovery or supporters, family and friends mm. um, of people in recovery and walk, wearing purple um, as the international recovery reco colour of recovery. Yeah. Um, it's a very big movement in the United States. It's becoming bigger in the UK. So in uh, the, the last one in September was in Halton in Cheshire and 6,000 people um, took to the streets to kind of declare their... Uh, their, their recovery and mm. to, to kind of make recovery visible within communities mm. so that people know that um, it is something that happens um, and uh, there are ways of, of finding it. Yeah, and so that is going to be well, a very interesting site for how that affects your research area, but also yes. indeed how it affects the whole the whole 12-step phenomenon. Um, mm. So we're out of time, okay. um, but I'll make sure... Um, in the podcast page, so there's a link that it was completely open access. Um, I 
journal yes. um, issue that you edited. So that's all available easily. And you've got a piece in the, is it in the conversation? Was that? Uh, no, it was a blog post a blog on post. the William Temple Foundation. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. My, my brain, my fuzzy brain. But um, we'll link to that. But just thanks so much, Wendy, for being on the RSP. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for that interview, Chris. Uh, it's a real pleasure to get uh, Wendy on again. She appeared, oh, was it about 18 months, two years ago, in our roundtable on um, narrative. And we'll probably be um, hearing from her again uh, later this year when the BASR conference takes place in Chester this September. And Chris and I will both be there. And hopefully this year, Tommy will be there as well. And we're intending to record our Christmas special. Yes, we're thinking about that already um, while we're there. Tommy, tell us what we've got coming up next week. And next week, uh, there's a podcast on religion, science and evolutionary theory with uh, Dr. Salman Hamid. And that's an interview that was recorded for us by Stephen Jones. So the other thing that we haven't mentioned is that this is actually our sixth year on air. We started in January 2012. It's now January 2017. So that's been five years of Religious Studies Project. And sitting around the table with me, David and Tommy, we've been uh, scheming um, for the next five years. Um, the last five years is, is also a wonderful musical by Jason Robert Brown. Uh, maybe we should make our own musical of the last five years of the Religious Studies Project. Yeah, but if you want to help us going forward into the next five years, here's what you can do. You can be sure when you're on Amazon.com.ca or .co.uk to uh, use our Religious Studies Project link for all your purchases. And um, also be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, stalk us on Google+, and uh, don't forget to check out our iTunes as well. And our ever-growing YouTube page. Thanks for that, Tommy. It's been wonderful having you here in Edinburgh. How are you finding it? Uh, I like it very much. Beautiful buildings, scenery, and uh, good beer. Well, that about sums up uh, my life, really, doesn't it? Um, come back on Thursday for the response. Don't forget to check out our Ops Digests every Tuesday. But until next week... Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.